Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. I'm Grant Belgard, and joining me today is Quinn Wills. Quinn, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, Grant. Thanks for having me. Um, yep, yeah, I'm uh, Quinn Wills. I'm the co-founder and CSO of OkaBio. We're a sort of deep phenotyping, so tissue genomics company that's trying to understand liver metabolism and how that maps to liver disease, NASH, which is a type of liver disease that is becoming really big in Western society right now, and liver transplants, which is kind of cool. So what's the, the origin story behind Ochre? That goes back quite a bit. I, I, I started off life on the dark side. So I, I started off life as a, a medical doctor and geneticist before I moved into comp bio. And I, um, and I was always interested in, in liver metabolism and metabolic stress. In those days, more around alcohol metabolism and fetal alcohol syndrome. But when I moved out from South Africa to the UK, I think like a lot of us became very intrigued with you know, big genetics, big genomics, could see what was coming on the horizon uh, and sort of human genome project and wanted to be more directly involved with that. I, I didn't like the idea of handing over data for other people to think about and engage. So I, I really just retrained, did a few extra degrees in mathematics and combio, and then sort of my PhD in systems genomics at Oxford, you know, really focused on technology, but constantly thinking about liver and liver metabolism all the way through. I uh, started my first biotech company before I finished my PhD using, in those days, gene expression arrays. Can you believe? Um, so I'm, I'm sort of dating myself now and uh, trying to compete with high content imaging to really understand drug toxicities, off-target effects uh, for the pharma industry. Move that out east and sort of carried on my academic career doing single-cell genomics and, and special genomics as we do now, these kind of things. And pitched the idea to a large pharma company that was coming onto the Oxford campus that would like to use these technologies to improve target discovery in NASH, which is, or, or NAFLD rather, I prefer to call it NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So in, in other words, too much fat in your liver, which one in four of us have these days with obesity. And um, they loved it. And of course, we got going and sort of big, big industry type pipelines and, and great technologies at a geno functional genomics level. And I loved it. I, I genuinely loved it. But I think the, the clinician in me uh, was a little bit frustrated with the, the struggle to translate uh, this problem. It's a massive problem. We're realizing it's so connected to cardiovascular disease, diabetes. Too much fat in the liver now is becoming the main reason for needing a liver transplant in many countries. It, it's not alcohol. It's not viral hepatitis anymore in many places in the world. And it's also becoming the main reason for the shortage of donor livers because fat in livers don't transplant very well. And, and you know, I, I just really wanted to solve this. And I do really want to solve this still. And figured that it was one of those sort of moments where you have to be honest with yourself and say, well, genomics is great and all the computational work is great, but we really need more to take this to the next level. And, and really the idea that sort of came together was when I started engaging the transplant surgeons in Oxford and we, we chatted about this problem in the transplant space. And they mentioned to me that they're about to publish on this incredible liver perfusion machine, effectively a machine that keeps donor livers alive outside the body. So you can assess the liver, keep it warm, keep it nourished before you transplant it. 
Uh, and would I want to study these fatty livers, these discarded donor fatty livers on the machine and do really interesting temporal analysis, you know, with gene expression and, and whatnot. Um, and, you know, realized very quickly that this was an incredible alternative to preclinical model. It was so much more satisfying going from sequencing lots of livers or studying liver physiology at, at, a, at a tissue level to then testing out your hypotheses in a living human liver on a machine and thinking about what's going on rather than going to you know, a high-fat diet mouse, for example. But I think for me, there was more to this and I decided really that it deserves to be its own company. And the more to this is that by, by really focusing on the transplant space rather than being diabetes, which I've sort of been for many, many that, years, this really allowed us to not only study livers on machines, and, and we, we do this as a company, but it allowed us to find new targets by studying the right spectrum of disease, which is a big issue in the space right now. People are really focused on biopsies of very inflamed fatty livers, whereas we're sequencing, uh, we're building the largest genomic atlas of the human liver uh, using a thousand livers from one of the biobanks in Oxford, going from healthy liver all the way through to the early stages of disease, which we love. And I can tell you a little bit about exactly how we're building up this, this atlas of what's going on in the liver. And then finally for us really, um, and this is more, a more clinical twist rather than a sort of a comp bio twist, you know, we wanted to get around the biomarkers problem. You, you and I both know this is a massive problem in our field. And it's a massive problem in clinical trials. And, uh, you know, fatty liver disease, NAFL, is, is like a lot of chronic diseases, silent for many, many years before it presents. And there's just no good biomarkers. So there are no ways to do good clinical trials, particularly for the, the early stages of disease. So everybody's very focused at the moment on very late stage disease endpoints, sort of crude endpoints and molecules and sort of experimental drugs that frankly I think do far too little too late and this is why we still don't have a therapy on the market you know not to oversimplify but in many reasons it's it's the difficulty in doing clinical trials that is frustrating the space right now and so we realized that of course we love biomarkers like any good computational biologist and we were thinking about it and, and but we, we don't want to bank on it and so rather than trying to do these very difficult clinical trials in the fatty liver space per se, you know, in terms of NASH and NAFLD, we rather want to, you know, think about this in the transplant space. So treat fatty donor livers with the same kind of therapies we'd use for patients living with a disease and improve outcomes in the transplant space. And those trials are much simpler to do. I mean, they still, you know, <laughs> like all clinical trials, it, it's a big gamble, but are in, from a biomarker perspective point of view, much clearer endpoints and then what we will do is as part of that look for improved long-term outcomes in these livers and we're doing this using these new Galnac srnas so they liver specific srnas that can last uh, with, with effects of many many months and so we can treat these livers entirely ex vivo on these machines before they're transplanted and so it never really goes into the patient it, it's entirely a, a liver specific treatment but we can see the effect play out over the first six months of the transplant life and um, that's that's where we're at and that's what we're doing as a company it's amazing so tell us a bit more about the atlasing efforts Yes. Um, so our, our first big target discovery project is this uh, human liver atlas, which takes a thousand livers 
from the uh, the Quad Biobank in Oxford. So this is an Oxford collaboration with with the transplant surgeons and the the Quad scientists at Oxford, um, where we are uh, genotyping these livers. We are bulk RNA sequencing these livers. We are spatially sequencing these livers. So in fact, all of these livers uh, get sequenced at least. Uh, well, up to four times. So there's, there's really a lot of data at an RNA sequencing point of view generated on these. We also um, do imaging AI, and that is really to standardize the histopath. So there are about seven images taken from each liver so we can understand what's going on. The imaging AI also identifies key regions that are of interest to us. Um, for example, there's, there's this cell phenotype called um, ballooning degeneration that happens in liver cells that we think is really important and we're trying to understand as something that connects too much fat and then inflammation and fibrosis cirrhosis in the liver. And then we have uh, all the bloods from the donors so we can understand cardiometabolic parameters. And we have about 150 clinical variables from the donors and the recipients because these livers, most of these livers that we're working on ultimately exist in somebody out there somewhere. And so we can really start asking questions both around uh, disease progression uh, and particularly the early stages of disease, which we're quite keen on, and then how that maps to transplant outcomes. And so can we think of targets that are applicable to both? So what would be your ideal outcome in, say, five years? Everything goes perfectly. Well, I, th I, think, like, <clears throat> I think like all biotechs, uh, we have... We have what we're doing now, but there's a there's a grander vision, and and like a lot of computational biologists, I believe that this this type of work, this what we call deep phenotyping or cellular genomics, is going to be such a big part of tying this together in our space. You know, uh, GWAS and associating SNPs with clinical disease is a great first step, and pharma is beginning to embrace this in many ways. But really, and particularly, I would argue for chronic diseases where there's so many factors and so many steps in the progression, this has to come into play. And so we're using this right now to understand liver metabolism and particularly fat metabolism uh, and how that plays out in the liver and also how that plays out systemically. But I think we, we consider ourselves a cardiometabolic company and we're really looking at uh, more fundamental health span drivers that we think we can be targeting in the liver to improve outcomes and, and really improve human health span. Great. So, so you guys went through YC. Can you tell us a bit about your experience there? Loved it. <laughs> My co-founder and I, uh, Jack O'Mara, we, we had an unusual meeting. I, after I left my job uh, with this pharma company, I went and decided to go build my dream tree house in Costa Rica and rethink uh, how I want to do this and where I want to be based. And do I want to be European in terms of biotech or do I want to be the US side? And of course, they are, they are very different cultures, even in the US. You know, West Coast biotech is very different from East Coast biotech, is very different from UK slash Europe. Uh, biotech, very different funding cultures, VC styles, trajectories in terms of how the companies grow. And I figured I possibly want to be more US side, even though I have such strong roots in Oxford and, and, and the transplant scene and the liver scene and the met metabolism genomic scene is so strong in Oxford. But then was introduced to Jack and I, I called Jack and at the time I called Jack, he was um, building huts in Tanzania. Um, so we immediately realized uh, <laughs> We were kindred spirits or equally crazy. And, um, you know, Jack Jack is an individual who's also comes up through biology, more tissue engineering, 
but is really focused on, on clinical progression. Um, so really getting therapies into market. So really was my a, a natural counterpart and shared a lot of my philosophies. We both share a lot of philosophies on how to really innovate in biotech and, and what that really requires. So we started off in London. I came back, Jack was in London, but we very quickly realized it was, it was a strange one. We went out to California for a conference, met the YC folks on the day that particular cohort was beginning, chatted with them. Within two, three hours, I said, we like you guys, stick around. And we canceled our tickets back and um, never went back to, uh, to London until COVID forced us to come back and get, take our money and get set up. So we're, we're, a, um, we, we're very much a Californian company. Uh, but with a sort of subsidiary in the UK and very, very internationally operational. But our Oxford lab is what handles a lot of the target validation and screening work after we've done with the target discovery and before we put it into perfused livers, which we do with transplant centers uh, here in the UK, particularly Birmingham. So what is your philosophy of innovation? Well, we have... Um, oh, now you're going to get me to step onto my podium yeah, I, I've, I've learned a lot. I've, I've been humbled a lot over the last 15 years of doing CompBio, um, seeing a lot of different cultures uh, all over the world, really, on how to do things. Uh, and for me, for me, there are three things that seem to be common to a lot of very successful genomics companies. So maybe we call ourselves a genomics company rather than a biotech company. Uh, and one is speed. And I mention this because this is something that I think a lot of academic computational biologists struggle with. It's, it's such a culture shock to them, you know, particularly if you come from big academic centers. There is this whole culture of, oh, it's okay, get it, get it 100% right six weeks from now, 80% now is probably not fine. Um, whereas, you know, in our world, it's very different. Um, and, and the incentives in the academia are very different. You know, there's this publish or perish uh, sort of notion, whereas in our world, it's deliver or die. You know, there's just there's just no substitute for speed. A biotech company with half as good as an idea for twice the amount of money will probably get there faster unless you're super quick. And there really just is no getting around that. And a sort of really building that culture in a combi company is extremely tough. I am far from perfecting it, but, you know, we, we try our best every time and hopefully get there. Uh, with the teams. I think the another important thing is, you know, we call, it, it's a bit naff, but we call it value-based innovation. I, I, I can't think of a better way to describe it. You know, again, in the academe, there, there's very often this idea of just blue sky, go be a brilliant computationist, come up with new algorithms, doesn't matter if they're relevant or not, just over-engineer, go wild. And, you know, for us, innovation by definition has to be better, cheaper, or faster than what somebody else is doing. Because if it's not, don't waste your time. Get on, do it the way other people are doing and focus your intelligent, really creative mind on other problems that where, where it can be better, cheaper, faster. And it really must be valuable. You know, as a biotech, you have so many priorities and you're moving so fast that even if something does seem like it could be better, cheaper or faster, right now it's just not a priority for you. And, and being able to balance that, especially if you're such an, you know, if you're a naturally creative person, as so many computational biologists are, is a, is a difficult balancing trick. And, and I think companies that get that right tend to be more successful. And I think one final one, and this is where I do believe 
US companies are winning hands down is a general can-do positive attitude with a positive risk-based culture. Uh, we in Europe struggle with this. We are still very risk-averse. We, we still always find 10 reasons for why something won't work. And it amazes me how much of that just general positivity, uh, which you see both on the East Coast and the West Coast in the US, um, can really just transform innovation uh, within a company. And those are the three things. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think American biotechs can learn from European biotechs culturally? That's a toughie because I'm, I'm always phrasing it uh, the other way around. I think, you know, well, let me, let me rephrase that question a certain way. There are certain attitudes in American biotech that won't play out in European biotech simply because the funding structures are very different. A lot of what I've just discussed works extremely well when you're also just chucking a lot of money at the problem. And you know, as I hinted at early on, there is no substitute for just chucking a lot of money at the problem. You, that is part of the high-risk game that we play when we take venture capital and we try to move quickly. A lot of biotech in Europe tends to follow uh, a trajectory of incubating within a university center, which is perhaps not so different from other biotechs, but then taking on grant structures which have longer timelines. And these are all great. You know, there's, there's, there's no right or wrong way. People will argue whether it's right or wrong, and there are lots of opinions around this. And I do believe fundamentally there's no right or wrong way to do that. But that is a much longer trajectory. Um, and so certain attitudes won't sort of won't play out to that. Great. And what about the other way around? What can European biotechs learn from American biotechs under the, the constraints of differences in availability of funding? Yeah. Um, stop overthinking everything <laughs> um, is, is, is the one simple way of, of explaining um, what I see when I look at a lot of European biotechs. Again, it's really about focus on speed, focus on value-based innovation, uh, you know, and focus on uh, creating a sort of a can-do culture. And that, really, those three things for me are so, so important. You know, and, and we see this in, in the UK. I, so, I, you know, I'm South African, uh, even though sort of the UK is my home now. And even after all these years of making the UK my home, it still amazes me at how difficult it is to get a high-five kind of culture going. It just doesn't, it doesn't always work. It just doesn't, it doesn't work with the culture. It doesn't work with the people. But, you know, finding ways to implement a sort of a more positive can-do culture needs to happen, I think, in a lot of biotechs to, to emulate what's happening in the US, but maybe sort of reappropriate it the way we do things on the side of the pond. So changing tack here, um, if you weren't a scientist or a physician, what would you be doing? I would be building tree houses in Costa Rica nonstop. <laughs> yeah, talk talk a bit more about that. I'm curious about this. But what's the what's the story here? Yeah, it, it's it's easy to to make up stories uh, to defend things you've said when you were young. Uh, so so I want to be careful about causality. But I remember in my first year of school, you know, when your teacher asks you what do you want to be and and what do you want to do. Uh, and I suppose I was a bit of a precocious kid, probably still a precocious kid now, even though I'm in my 40s. Uh, and I said to my teacher, I want to be a medical doctor that does research. So that, that was my career choice right then and there. Uh, and that one played out. 
uh, again, maybe I was creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I always said I wanted to live in a wooden house. And so growing up in South Africa, that, that had a very particular idea attached to it. But as I learned to love traveling all over the world as a scientist, as so many of us do, I, I just fell in love with Central America and I, I really fell in love with Costa Rica and the life out there. And um, so together with a, a really good friend of mine who's in many ways the Jane Goodall of Central America, uh, but put some money down uh, for some jungle and uh, started building uh, my treehouse, my dream treehouse out there next to a beautiful river with gorgeous waterfalls. And I will keep doing this as long as the money is available and <laughs> I can do it and uh, build my little community and friends and uh, retire out there one day. When, when is the other South Africans internet enabled satellite service uh, becoming available? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Soon, please. Yeah, then you could just work from your treehouse, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, right now, in fact, you joke, but right now there's, there's, I'm trying to solve this problem from a distance um, because I, one of the first things I had to do out there was set up some solar-powered Wi-Fi, well, well, 4G to, to Wi-Fi routers. And um, yes, uh, the, the solar panels are still working uh, and the repeaters still seem to be working, but the, uh, the, the main router sitting on a hill somewhere it seems to be it seems to be giving in uh, and trying and with my poor Spanish and others poor English, it's um, difficult trying to fix this. So yes, please, somebody needs to sort out internet to the jungle soon. Very cool. Tell us a bit more about uh, you know when you were a kid. Why did you say you wanted to be a medical doctor that, who did research? I mean, did you have kind of a family background in this, or uh, read some book, or? Do you know, came to you in a dream? <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I honestly, I still don't know where that came from. Something must have sparked that. I, I come from a, a long line of, of engineers and tinkerers and, and inventors. So that there is the invention streak uh, in my family, that's for sure. But I, you know, it was bizarre. I, 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 said I, I said I wanted to be a doctor. My brother said he wanted to be a lawyer. He did the next best thing and became a banker. And where are they living? Uh, my brother lives out in the UK too now, enjoying enjoying the London high life as a banker. Fancy schmancy. Huh? <laughs> uh, I hope to make as much money as he does one day. <laughs> so tell us about the, uh, the the COVID situation. I think you you two were um, had a maybe even a more 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 interesting than average experience with it. Mm, yeah, timing. No, the timing was it was quite. I, I did a quick trip out to Costa Rica, and um, you know. A few days into the trip, just realized that the world was shutting down with this this the, you know um, epidemic, which became pandemic, and um, very quickly flew back to California to watch California shut down, uh, and everyone panics. I was there when everyone was doing the panic purchases and, and toilet paper was disappearing and, and, and all the rest, and we we had to make a call: do we hang around in the U.S. and, and try? you sort of continue our fundraising out there or do we assume that the whole world is going to go virtual and really we need to be right back in the uk so once the money is in we can set up and continue in the uk and it was again one of those things where jack and i just looked at each other in the eyes and said right tonight we're going home and, and we did and got there thankfully everybody adjusted to the new normal very quickly um Thankfully, biotech funding only improved. You know, not that I would wish that for COVID, but 
I think it just really focused individuals on healthcare and investing in companies with longer term goals rather than sort of immediate profits. And so that played out very well for us. And thankfully, again, uh, we're able to get set up in an academic center so that the lab can continue on Rota. And because a lot of this initial target discovery has, you know, in collaboration with Quad and the transplant scientists, has been processing tissues, um, that could continue. It, not without its problems, it's cost a lot more money to keep the show on the road. Um, I think a lot of international couriers have made a lot of money out of us getting samples sent all over the world. But, you know, again, count our blessings and thankfully so far, so good. Great. So what advice would you have for biotech entrepreneurs? Oh, dear. Um, so the common question you get asked is, do you need to have a brilliant idea? You do need to recognize your unfair advantage as an individual. What, what is it that you're particularly, not only particularly passionate about, but you know that you're probably better than average with, uh, in, you know, and that you could really trade on. I think in many ways that's, that's more important, but of course, a fantastic idea doesn't hurt. Most important, really, and, and I've learned this painfully over the years and sort of growing up in the space, is that your co-founder is everything. And I, I, was, I was really adamant that I didn't want to I have another academic, very academic, scientific co-founder. It's kind of like finding a life partner and getting married. Somebody who just naturally compliments you. You know, you match each other when you're both down. You can fill in for each other. You know, it's you two against the world kind of thing. Um, and I found that in my co-founder. And I know that no matter what, you know, we will keep assisting together and we'll find a way to make this successful. And that is, that's just so important to do. So other than serendipity, how, how can people maximize their chances of finding a good co-founder? Yeah. How, how can you increase the, the likelihood of mm. a serendipitous mm. event? That, I, it, honestly, I think the rise and rise of uh, these accelerator programs internationally has been a fantastic way to do this. Yeah, I, I, could have, I could have done things up through sort of the Oxford ecosystem, but one of the reasons why I went for these accelerators is because of this. And uh, something perhaps that we are better at, uh, says he controversially, in the UK versus the US is how accelerator programs are done here. There's an excellent, truly excellent accelerator program here in London that we started off with called Entrepreneur First. Uh, and they have many philosophies on how one could be competitive as, as a uh, sort of UK company. Uh, and right at the top of that, is getting the right co-founder versus uh, YC, where it's come with an idea and your co-founder and will give you a good chunk of money just to move very quickly with it. YC, you know, EF's approach is find the right partner and they give you money and time to play with the right individual and, and sort of really test out this fit together. Um, both are great models, both worked for us, but really first and foremost, it began with Entrepreneur First uh, here in London. Cool. So uh, long term, I mean, looking out when you retire, whenever, whenever that is, uh, <laughs> uh, what, would you, what would you like to be known for? What would you want to have done? I, I think really, fundamentally, I am driven by this concept of improving human health span. As somebody who started off life as a clinician, when I look at 
healthcare. It doesn't matter which healthcare model you, you believe in either side of the pond. When you look at how, as a species, we've doubled our lifespan and are, are progressing to tripling it, and what that means in terms of crippling healthcare in the later stages of life, I think one of the best ways to flatten that curve, again, no matter which side of the sort of the funding equation you are on in healthcare, is that we need to start moving away just from disease endpoints and to start focusing on fundamental health span endpoints. Now, some people will call this aging medicine, anti-aging medicine. I, I'm, I'm careful of using those terms because it does it does come with a lot of, I think, traditional baggage around that, but really focused on the fundamentals of health span and uh, how we tackle that uh, as add-ons to other therapies or even fundamentally just to improve your health span. And, and when you're in the cardiometabolic space like this, diabetes, uh, liver metabolism, NAFLD, it's a really juicy problem to be thinking about. And I hope one day I can I can just, just make a little bit of a dent in that problem um, and sort of improve healthcare for humanity. And what, what do you think are the most sensitive levers there that we can pull? That's a, that's a very, very big question. I think um, perhaps I will answer this in an overly simplistic way. Yeah, I, I love to listen to this debate, the healthcare debate, right? And, and for me, uh, the, the, the obvious debate is always you know, this side of the pond versus the US and, and universal healthcare and how does that play out. It's interesting because if you look at sort of big data and how it's driving healthcare, uh, there are a lot of trends that are non-obvious. For example, a lot of preventative health, which overlaps a lot with how I think about health span, um, is being driven by private medicine. You know, insurance companies are rewarding you. Uh, for for your apps and staying healthy and taking so many steps, uh, which is light years ahead of perhaps how we do it in the NHS here in the in the UK. And I say that very carefully so that I don't get, get myself into too much trouble. So there are a lot of non-obvious things happening in the space. But I think what is universal to, to all of us is that we spend an extortionate amount of money in the later years of life to stay healthy. You know, we've, we've all now in the COVID era become familiar with this concept of flatten the curve. Um, flattening the curve in healthcare, uh, I think, needs to come from uh, therapies that are fundamentally focused on health span and health span modifiers, whether that's more preventative medicine or that's attached to other therapies. You know, or, you know even more simply put, one way I like to say this to people um, uh, who think a lot about obesity, because of course obesity is a very big uh, area that I think about too in the spaces. We need to, we really, really need to stop preaching to people and telling them to move more and eat less. It doesn't work. It really doesn't work. And if we could solve obesity as an issue, we would make massive strides uh, towards flattening that curve in healthcare. Well, it's impressive uh, how strongly heritable obesity is in the context of course of environment but in terms of of uh you know comparing across different different phenotypes i mean it, it's very heritable yeah no it, it's it's incredible and it, it's just incredible seeing what we know about obesity and and so body fat distributions and how that affects different diseases why are we still so moralistic about this in, in general healthcare? i can only hope that future generations will look back and sort of shake their heads at how silly we were at, at really just forcing this and you know, body shaming people and making them feel bad about how much they eat and 
uh, this sedentary lifestyle. Of course, these things are important. And of course, we should do our best to exercise as much as we can and not consume too many calories. Um, but we need to start thinking more smartly about how we modify um, sort of these these phenotypes like obesity and, and fat distribution. You know, it's um, they are they're the three distributions, and really, in many ways, as a company, we focus on one. There's fat around on the outside of your body, and, and many of us in research know, of course, there's fat around your internal organs. But now we know various organs also build up fat inside the organs, inside the cells, the organs as you age, and the liver is one of them. We just need to think about how we treat this problem. So on a completely unrelated topic, uh, what surprised you the most about the COVID pandemic? I, I love non-obvious things playing out, um, and especially when they play out in your favor. And I think the thing that has amazed me is um, how well biotech uh, investment is happening right now. And again, like a lot of complex systems, you should be very careful of coming up with overly simplistic explanations. But it seems to me with COVID that it, it has really highlighted to people how fragile we are as a species in terms of healthcare. You know, we can fly to the moon and yet a simple virus can wipe out an economy uh, very quickly. It seems to have really made venture capitalists uh, more eager to focus on companies like uh, like biotech, where you're not expecting to turn out a massive profit in three years' time, and that's and that's fantastic, you know, and, and power to all of us because that is where I believe the future is in sort of good innovation and where venture capitalists need to be taking bigger risks. Many people who maybe weren't uh, in the infectious disease space, weren't uh, seriously anticipating something like this. What things do you think are underestimated? Uh, you know, what, what things do you think in the next, in the next decade or so uh, could really come out and, and change things in a way that most people aren't at all prepared for? Mm. I mean, I, I, quite honestly, I, I, I think it's worth pointing again uh, to infectious disease. You know, it, it's really incredible. Uh, if, you're, if you're interested in aging medicine and aging drivers and, and nutrient sensing and how all these things play out as we age, you look at some of the great uh, popular books that have been written recently, uh, and, and particularly coming out of, again, East Coast, West Coast, US. And I think almost all of these books uh, by various academic authors, except for one or two, perhaps, have all said that, of course, the future of humanity is so dependent on understanding, you know, the fundamentals of aging metabolism, et cetera, et cetera, with the one exception that there could be a massive viral or disease pandemic that can wipe us out. Um, and, and there you go. This is, this is what we're living right now. You know, we are, we are a very fragile species. Feels a bit like it's kind of the the little league version here, right? If this had the uh, fatality rate of SARS or MERS or something, mm. we'd be in a deep shit. Yep. No, absolutely. It's uh, yes. Uh, let's hope we learn from this. Um, uh, but <laughs> history dictates that humans need a few things to go needed to go wrong a few times uh, before we learn. Fingers crossed, it is not the case this time around. For sure. Great. Well, 
Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, and also, is there is there anything else you want to say before we go? Anything else about the uh, the company? A, a shameless plug. Um, <laughs> the, the company, uh, some some hobby of yours, whatever. <laughs> no, no, no shameless plugs. Only to just uh, thank my co-founder and thank my team. It's uh, it's just it's such an honor and a privilege as as a modern human being to be able to chase your passions, to be to be financed to chase your patterns, and have even if it's just a small chance of being able to make a real difference uh, to sort of human health. And I'm very lucky to have the people I have around me. Uh, so thank you. And uh, thank you, Gaunt, for having me on, man. Well, thanks for joining us. It was great.